Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams. I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. We're located off of Highway 316. If you're local, come check us out. Our service is at 1030 on Sundays, and you can learn more by visiting our church website, which is calvary316.com. There is a lot I want to talk about today a lot I want to talk about that I find to be very relevant. So I'm going to kind of forego a lot of the formalities. Check out our uh, our website, which is outlawradio.org. You can find the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, outlawradio.org. But I want to kind of forego all the formalities because I have a lot to say and really not enough time to say it. And so we're going to move fast. Hold on for the next hour because this is going to be intense. I want you to imagine that you are sitting in a synagogue located right off the beautiful Sea of Galilee. In its first century context, this building of rock, sand, and stone is enormous. As you look around at your surroundings, you can't help but sit in awe at the ornate architecture, the intricate design. I mean, in comparison to all the other structures in Capernaum, it's obvious that such a building would never have been constructed if not for a powerful, wealthy Roman benefactor. While the synagogue that morning is filled to capacity, you find it oddly comfortable with the morning breeze coming in off the cool lake through the large windows and doors constructed to provide much-needed ventilation. Not only do you find the air crisp and refreshing, but the excitement in that room is inescapable. On that particular day, everyone has amassed for one reason. Jesus, the famous rabbi, was going to be speaking. After you take in the scene, your attention shifts to the crowd, you know, sitting around you. Just off stage right, you see Jesus' 12 closest followers congregating with likely the ruler of the synagogue. In the seats of honor surrounding the stage, you notice a delegation of religious leaders recently arrived from Jerusalem. The elaborate robes, the hats, the tassels of these affluent and influential men are really a, a, a distinct contrast to the common folk you're rubbing shoulders with in the gallery. On that specific morning, the overwhelming multitude of those in attendance are probably peasants, local peasants from either Capernaum or one of the many towns that make up the Galilee. As you look around at the expanse of those piled into the back pews, you can't help but consider how the majority of the audience was the poor beaten down masses. Whether it was the high taxes of Rome or the economic unrest, they all bore physical signs of struggle. And yet you also notice a particular fire, an optimism in their eyes. While the scowls of the religious leaders make it clear they were skeptical of Jesus, the larger vibe in that room was a combination of excitement mixed with anticipation. No doubt the lion's share of the audience that morning was convinced that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. As you eavesdrop on the conversations happening around you, it's, it's evident that most of the crowd had been following Jesus for the last several months. As you listen in to their firsthand accounts of, of the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 that happened just the day before, you realize that many of these pew sitters had, had tried to take Jesus by force and make him their king. You learn that Jesus had dispersed the crowd, but many are discussing how that morning they hurried across the sea just to be in attendance. I mean, universally, people in that room, they are consumed with speculation as to what they were going to witness. I'm sure as you are sitting there watching the countdown timer on the flat screens work its way to zero and the lights dim, you can feel the avidity in the crowd intensifying. People are desperate to know what Jesus is going to say. And more than that, they're curious. What would he do? 
Many hoped that this would be the day that Jesus may spark a revolution against the occupiers. Still others had gathered optimistic that Jesus might perform another amazing miracle his reputation was known for. The jitters of the crowd quickly still, and the rumblings and banter instantly cease as Jesus, the rabbi, emerges on stage and makes his way to the pulpit. Everyone present, for a myriad of varying reasons, are on the edge of their seats as Jesus begins to speak. Now, this sermon is recorded in John chapter 6, but let me read it for you. Jesus opens, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now, as you're listening, once again, you're in the synagogue, that thought gets interrupted by some within the crowd that begins to, 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 to declare, Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now, unfazed by the interruption, Jesus turns and he answers in, in a tender voice. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Again, the audience interjects, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe in you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, with a, a glance of compassion, but an obvious conviction in his voice, Jesus replies, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father did. He gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread from God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And it's with that statement that the crowd around you in the gallery, they, 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 they erupt in, in complete unison. Lord, give us this bread always. You notice their reaction there causes a measure of frustration to surface within Jesus. Like trying to get the audience to see beyond the physical. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of, of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up the last day. Now, it's at that very point that these religious Jews, those, those leaders sent from Jerusalem, they begin to complain among themselves, because Jesus said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. Furthermore, as you, as you listen in, you can hear them asking, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Now, undeterred by this distraction, Jesus answers and he says to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent him draws him and I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Now, Jesus pauses before continuing. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. As, as you sit back in this synagogue, you can feel the tension in the room. In light of what Jesus has just said, these Jews, they begin to quarrel amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's their criticism. Now, now, no longer are they directing their questions at Jesus, but these religious leaders are directing their concerns to, to the larger audience in attendance. Now, Jesus, knowing that they were intentionally twisting his words to foster confusion, he takes command of the room and he says, most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, once again, you're in the synagogue, and it's with that statement that Jesus pulls back from the podium, and he takes a seat. Now, there's a lot that you could unpack about the Bread of Life discourse. Uh, I've, I've taught the last several weeks about this particular sermon at Calvary 316. Again, calvary316.com. You can listen to all of the studies about this subject matter. But for our purposes today, I, I want to I turn your attention to the reaction of this sermon. You're sitting there. The reaction's unexpected. According to John 6, verse 60, we read, Therefore many of Jesus' disciples, and, and this is the larger group beyond the twelve, when they heard what Jesus said, they replied, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And, and that reaction would be better translated as, This is an offensive message. Who can accept it? You see, it wasn't the substance of Jesus' sermon that was difficult to grasp intellectually, but the substance of his sermon that was hard for them to accept. And here's why. It was offensive. It offended their sensibilities. Well, well, John continues the narrative. He says that when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, he turns and he says, does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew, John adds, from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. This is Jesus' comment. And then John says, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Peter answered and said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. <laughs> and also we've come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Again, imagine being in the synagogue that morning. Jesus works his way through the meat of the sermon. He answers the inquiries of the crowd, the cynicism of the religious leaders. You feel the room. It, it morphs. That in initial exuberance of the crowd dissipates. I mean, what Jesus is saying, the heaviness of it all, it sucked the air right out of the place. It's, it's hard for you to ignore the fact that that initial fire in the eyes of the masses, the one of hope, 
had all but been extinguished. The anticipation, the elation of the crowd had been now replaced with a disbelief and even a despondency. I mean, it was evident. They just couldn't believe what it was that they were hearing. (laughs) Jesus wasn't living up to the billing, but his message was offensive. As you look around the room, you can't help but notice a very visceral and in some ways personal deflation of those who had gathered. Yeah, it began with one or two who rose to their feet and left the synagogue in disgust, but it didn't take long for this trickle to form into a stream. The very group that had arrived that morning to hail Jesus King and follow him into battle are now bailing. While this is happening, you, you witness a tempered but noticeable glee coming from the smirks of the religious leaders as they follow the masses out of the auditorium. I mean, Jesus had crossed the line. He had alienated the people without them even being forced to take any type of action. Jesus had done them a favor. As the stream of deserters swell into a river, your attention shifts now to the 12, you know, those guys sitting stage right. And the look on their face, oh man, it said it all. I mean, there's no question that the departure of such a large group of disciples following this sermon was, was disheartening. I mean, a, a punch to the gut. Many of these people were their friends and family. Their dismay is so obvious that even Jesus notices. He turns to them. And what does he say? He says, do you also want to go away? And I imagine that question tinges with emotion. Peter his initial reply before his larger statements of faith, it said it all. He, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? And think about that for a moment. Peter doesn't rebuff the fact that what Jesus has said was offensive, nor does he do anything to conceal their disappointment. Further, Peter doesn't even deny the reality that departing hadn't been a temporary consideration. Instead, Peter's response just indicated the reality that once the options had been weighed in light of everything they knew of Jesus, they really didn't have any option. Now, with our remaining time about the reaction to this bread of life discourse, there is a question that I want to answer, and there is an overarching statement that I want to make. And I think this is very relevant, especially as it pertains to the seeker-friendly movement and the attractional church model. Once again, you're listening to Outlaw Radio. Don't go anywhere. Hi, my name is David Guzik, and I'm a friend of Zach and the entire team at Outlaw Radio. One of the things I like most about Outlaw Radio is Zach's desire to challenge Christians to think critically, ask relevant questions, and then pursue answers on their own. The sad reality is too many Christians don't know what they believe, yet alone why they believe what they do. This is why, in addition to Outlaw Radio tackling the tough topics you might not hear at church on Sundays, their desire is to equip inspire and challenge you to dig into God's Word and wrestle with these complex topics on your own. To help you in this process, Zach wanted me to let you all know of two free resources essential for any serious Bible student. Aside from my full Bible commentary available at EnduringWord.com, the resources you can access at BlueLetterBible.org will truly transform the way you study the Bible. Aside from their treasure trove of free commentaries, blueletterbible.org also has an incredible word search function, making it easy to dive into the original languages behind a biblical text. So if you want to dig deeper into your study of scripture, 
check out EnduringWord.com as well as BlueLetterBible.org. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. Today I'm discussing a sermon that really doesn't get as much attention as it should, a sermon given by Jesus in a synagogue in Capernaum titled The Bread of Life Discourse, the day before Jesus has fed the 5,000, and he teaches this incredible sermon. Now, we're not getting into all the substance of it, but the sermon was controversial, so much so that people started leaving Jesus, disciples were leaving him in droves. Now, I mentioned in our previous block that I want to kind of build on this Bread of Life discourse by by presenting a final question with an overarching statement. And let's start with, with the question. What, what was it about Jesus' sermon that was so offensive a group of disciples, who, by the way, had spent months following him around the Galilee, had seen Jesus perform miracles like feeding the 5,000, who that very day wanted to make Jesus their king, now completely bail and forsake him? I mean, it's really, it's really a provocative thought. Now, to answer this question, let me first point out that, that most of your decisions, my decisions, manifest from what, what I refer to as a need-fix-results framework. Need-fix-results. A need drives you to a fix, which fosters a result. If the results fail to effectively address the need, or let's say for that matter, create a more pressing and larger need, the fix then logically receives the blame and is abandoned for a new pursuit. Let me give you a couple of examples. If let's say your fundamental need is money and a new job is seen as the fix, but after getting the new job, the result isn't enough money or worse still, you have ample money, but no time with your family. What happens? Well, you'll either uh, quit the job and seek a new fix to that first need or, since money is a larger need, you'll sacrifice your family as a result. Let's say your need is being needed. And a girlfriend becomes seen as the logical fix. But, you know, after a few months into the relationship, you don't feel needed. It's not working like you wanted it to. She's become nothing but drama, right? Well, what do you do? You'll dump the girlfriend, right? And you'll seek a new fix to your initial need. In that situation, I'll give you a little advice. Go get a puppy. Let's say your need is happiness. And drugs or partying are seen as the fix. But after a period of time, neither of these things are yielding the desired result. Logically, what happens? You'll change the drug or the scene in order to gin up that sense of pleasure and happiness that you desperately wanted in the first place. Needs always drive to a perceived fix, desiring a specific result. And, and if the result doesn't meet the need, it's only natural you'll then move on to a different fix. Now, this need-fix-results framework is especially relevant when it comes to Jesus, and, and why one of the grand lessons of this particular sermon is that it's critical you come to Jesus seeking him as a fix for the correct need. Like, that's important because if you don't, it's likely you won't be pleased with the results and end up bailing on Jesus like these disciples because you end up finding him offensive. 
Like, think about the multitude present that day in Capernaum, in that synagogue. If it was the oppression of Rome that brought you to Jesus, hoping he'd be your king, the fact that Jesus refuses to lead a revolution, it would have left you upset and in time looking for a new fix, a new revolutionary. If you came hoping that Jesus would free you, let's say, from the tax burden of Rome, the fact that Jesus failed to speak to that social issue, I'd probably have left you upset. And by the way, you, you would have been further disillusioned when Jesus would later address that topic by saying that you should render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Again, Jesus dodging the distraction of lesser needs so he could address larger ones. You see, in that day, if you came in, into the synagogue desiring an experience, you wanted to be fed, bread multiplied, or wowed by a miracle, the fact that Jesus only taught a sermon a sermon, by the way, that was offensive, it would have left you disappointed and likely looking elsewhere. Once more, if you wanted to feel real good about yourself, you know, while you go to church, Jesus's sermon, which, and we didn't have time to unpack it, but emphasized the importance of his death to atone for your sin, that would not have sufficed, would it? Wouldn't have made you feel good about yourself. You see, ultimately, a large multitude of people, they leave Jesus For one reason, they had come hoping he'd fix the wrong need. Now, that was so apparent that that Jesus, even in the beginning of his sermon, addresses it. Jesus began by saying, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus begins his sermon, how? By diagnosing a problem within the audience that was in attendance. Though the act of seeking Jesus was to be commended, I mean, in in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he declares, seek, right, and you shall find. But Jesus begins here by undressing their true motivations. He says, you seek me not because you saw the sign, but because you ate of the loaves of bread and were filled. See, Jesus is telling the crowd that their core problem was the fact that they were seeking him because they had ate of the loaves and were filled and not because they saw the sign. He's telling them that there was a right and a wrong way, wrong motivation for seeking after him, and they were guilty of the latter. Like it would appear, the issue wasn't that the multitude failed to see the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, like that they didn't see it. Most of them had been present, had eaten the bread, the miracle bread. Instead, the problem centered on a failure to understand the purpose behind the miracle. This is what Jesus means when he, when he rebukes them for not seeing the sign. The word saw, it implies perception. They didn't perceive what it was about. Instead of seeking after Jesus because they recognized the deeper spiritual lesson he was illustrating when he blessed and broke the loaves to feed the multitude, this crowd, they were pursuing Jesus for no other reason than they just ate and were filled. You see, the problem was that they were seeking after Jesus, hoping Jesus would address their physical needs, oblivious to their spiritual ones. They were seeking, desiring a better life in the here and now. Some wanted Jesus to be a political leader, liberate them from Roman oppression. Others wanted him to be a social justice warrior, institute a more equitable society. Everyone present that day had eaten of the loaves and were filled because, well, they had been hungry. 
and before we, we we get on the crowd too much, keep in mind we're we're all guilty of the same thing, the same approach. You know, after the world chewed us up and spit us out, why do you come to Jesus ultimately? If you're being honest, like this multitude, you come to Jesus because, well, you were desperate for a better life. Like you wanted Jesus to take care of your physical needs and make everything, especially all the problems you were facing, immediately better. Like if you were broke, you, you came to Jesus hoping he'd make you wealthy or at least get you out of debt. If you were sick, you came seeking to be healed. If you were lonely, you came desiring that Jesus would give you a spouse or friends. If you were unemployed, a job would be nice. If you were oppressed, you came hoping he'd right those wrongs. If you think about it, it, this actually explains the the marketing strategy of many of today's churches, the seeker-friendly churches and the attractional church models. But, But here's the problem. It's not that Jesus doesn't want to take care of your physical, material, emotional, or practical needs. He does. But, and this is the pressing point, seeking Jesus for those specific concerns tragically robs you of the fundamental reason you should be seeking him in the first place. And this is Jesus' point with his whole thesis, his whole intro. This crowd of people... This crowd of people, they were seeking him because they wanted Jesus to address needs X, Y, and Z. When Jesus says you should be seeking him for the more pressing needs of A, B, and C. I mean, think about it. Who cares if you gain the whole world, if Jesus helps you gain the whole world, but you never seek him as a savior and therefore lose your soul in the process. So, so that leads us to a question, right? Why are you seeking Jesus? You know, th- there's a lot of ways that I could, I could illustrate my point. But God took care of this. I was prepping for this episode, and there was a flyer in my mailbox from a local kind of seeker-friendly church. And they were advertising a four-part series on marriage. Here's what the flyer says. The pastor writes, Hollywood... Sure makes marriage seem simple. You meet the perfect person, fall in love, say I do, and then live happily ever after. But we all know the truth. Marriage isn't that simple. A strong marriage takes a tremendous amount of hard work, selflessness, communication, and grace. Please join us this Sunday as we begin a four-part marriage series titled Married Life and learn how to love each other for a lifetime. Now that sounds nice, doesn't it? But, but please know why this church is marketing this series to the community. <laughs> Every marriage struggles. And they want struggling marriages, which there are many, to come to their church for help. A mailer, by the way, saying, you're totally screwed up, and apart from Jesus, you're going to hell, doesn't market test very well. The attraction is to come to Jesus so he can fix a practical need, your marriage. Sadly, though, because of the very nature of the marketing strategy and the fact that Jesus was never once mentioned on the brochure, my guess is the series will end up centering on answering the logical question anyone who comes to Jesus for the wrong reason will ultimately ask. Well, what what do we do? I hope I'm wrong, but it's likely these four studies will be nothing more than a whole bunch of practical work, steps, that they'll teach you to do in order to love your spouse. Don't go anywhere. We'll pick up that thought when we come back here on the Outlaw Radio Show. As you've gathered, Pastor Zach is talking about the modern church movement called the attractional or seeker-friendly movement. Don't go anywhere. Zach will be back with part two of today's edition of the Outlaw Radio Show.
As you gathered, Pastor Zach is talking about the attractional or seeker-friendly church model in today's edition of the Outlaw Radio Show. Here's Zach. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. In our last block, I mentioned this flyer that I got in the mail from a local seeker-friendly church advertising a a four-part series on on marriage. The flyer never mentioned Jesus, and and it talks about... um, you know how marriage is hard, and you've got to be selfless, and 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 you got to work on communication and grace, and 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 the reason that they're doing this, by the way, is that uh, most marriages need help, so they're appealing to a practical need to get you to come to church, overlooking your base needs, your real need, like like for example, and don't get me wrong, if your marriage is struggling, Jesus is very interested in being part of the remedy. But I guess my point is that he wants to be part of the remedy in a much different way than that church was advertising. Like the focus shouldn't be coming to church so that you can, quote, learn how to love each other for a lifetime, but instead coming to Jesus so that he can fill your heart with an eternal love for your spouse that will last because it comes from him and not you. Like if I were rewriting their advertisement to be gospel centric, this is how it would read. Hollywood sure makes marriage seem simple. You meet the perfect person, fall in love, say I do, and then live happily ever after. But we all know the truth. Marriage isn't that simple. A strong marriage requires two people die to themselves daily and constantly rely on Jesus. Join us this Sunday as we begin a four-part message series, Married Life, where we discuss how your only hope for marital success is Jesus and the reciprocal nature of his grace. (laughs) Friend, it's not that Jesus doesn't want to work in the practical areas of your life. It's just that this natural work flows from a larger work that Jesus died to accomplish, which is why the attractional church model is flawed. It intentionally appeals to a person's lesser need because it's not as offensive, as opposed to being bold enough to call out that person's true problem, which is their sin. If you and your your spouse are struggling, the remedy isn't four weeks of things to do, but instead a savior you both need to turn to. Like the only way that my wife can love me for a lifetime is for that love to originate and flow from the cross where she first experienced his love for her. Like apart from that, no quote amount of work, hard work, selflessness, and communication is ever going to suffice. So again, I I ask in the context of of wherever you are or what you're facing, are you seeking Jesus? And if so, why? And there is a difference, friend, between seeking Jesus to fix your problems as opposed to seeking him to save your soul. Again, Jesus says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Consider why of all the groups present that day, it was only the twelve who refused to bail on Jesus? No, sure. They were disappointed that Jesus didn't start a revolution. I'm sure they'd, they would have liked to have seen a miracle or two, and no doubt the whole eating his flesh and drinking his blood didn't sit well. And yet, the disciples don't bail on Jesus for one simple reason. According to Peter, they correctly understood their most pressing need was salvation. And since Jesus was promising everlasting life, As an effective savior, he remained their most logical fix. Again, Peter's response as to why they weren't bailing, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of of, of eternal life. Understand the reason 
Many of Jesus' disciples left, and ultimately, why people get so offended by Jesus today is that they come to realize really one of two things. They either realize that Jesus isn't the fix for their specific need, or they're not cool with what Jesus says they actually need. Like, like in contrast, the 12 stayed for one reason. They could admit what their real need was. Eternal life, a fix that Jesus had actually come to remedy. Now, in order to build off of this explanation as to why Jesus' message was offensive, and I said as it pertains to the bread of life discourse, there was a question that I wanted to discuss. Why was Jesus' message so offensive so many people left? I wanted to have a question, but I also wanted to conclude with a statement about this sermon. And, and for full disclosure, what I'm about to say is not going to sit well with some people that are listening. It's okay. The title of the show is Outlaw Radio. I don't care about your feelings. Here it is. Jesus' message was offensive because it was offensive. Like, like, furthermore, Jesus, it's obvious, would rather risk a following than placate the truth of the gospel. Like the secret that so many churches today are trying to hide. They'll never admit this, but it's the truth. The, what they're trying to hide, with the seeker-friendly model, with Andy Stanley and what, what all these, the attraction, what they're trying to hide or ease you into is the truth that the gospel message is fundamentally offensive. Like not only will Jesus refuse to be complicit in fixing needs that don't really matter, but Jesus is clear. The Bible is clear what your need really is. He can never be a savior if you won't admit you're a sinner. And you know, the Bible doesn't tiptoe around this reality. The reality of sin is front and center all over scripture. Andy Stanley can want to detach us from the Old Testament because it, it's offensive. But then you've got the New Testament to deal with. And over and over and over again, the Bible clearly says that apart from Jesus, you're broken, and it's this brokenness that alienates you from God. You can't get around that. Sure, there is no question that Jesus loves you. But the gospel declares that Jesus does not love who you are in sin. The truth, whether you want to hear it or not, is that you aren't cre created, like, like you aren't operating as God created you to be because of sin. Your desires, your proclivities, they're skewed. As a consequence of sin, your, your very identity and the pursuits that come as a result of that identity are warped. Friend, whether, whether your church will tell you or not, I will, you're a mess apart from Jesus. You see, the very, the very idea of the fall following creation implies that you and I aren't naturally the way that God intended us to be. And if you can't admit you're fallen, how can Jesus ever pick you up? The truth is nothing in this life is the way that God designed and created it to be, including 
most importantly, you. And yet, the glorious news of the gospel also states that if you're willing to admit that fundamental need, that you're broken, that Jesus is not just willing to fix you, he wants to. He's not content to leave you that way. When, when someone says, it drives me nuts, but you'll hear someone say of themselves, Jesus loves me, man, just the way that I am. I, I want you to know when someone utters those words, they are at best self-deceived. Furthermore, when a pastor utters such nonsense, the truth is their words ooze from below and aren't coming from above. Jesus loves you, but not the way that you are. And let's be honest, such a statement, the reason you don't hear it in a lot of churches is it's offensive. Telling someone who they are and what they're doing is not okay, or for that matter, lovable, it assaults their sensibilities. And yet, the inability to admit your core need only neuters the fundamental power of the gospel. If you can't admit your real need is salvation, what good is Jesus to you as a savior? Not much. Now, now if you're struggling with that concept, that central concept of the gospel, I want to challenge you with one simple question. One simple question. If Jesus really does love you just the way that you are, then why in the world would he have died specifically to transform you into something you aren't? Again, let me repeat it. If Jesus really does love you just the way that you are, then why would Jesus have died? Why, why would it have been necessary for him to have died? Specifically, as the scriptures say, to transform you into something you aren't. Transformation is the goal of the gospel. And if you can't admit you need it, it'll never happen. Don't go anywhere. We'll tie all this together when we come back here on the Outlaw Radio Show. One of the missions of Outlaw Radio is to bring your attention to ministry resources that will benefit your personal study of the Bible and spiritual growth. With this in mind, we want you to check out Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Not only is their vision to help the thinker believe, but they exist to help the believer think. To accomplish both of these aims, their website, rzim.org, is filled with tons of free resources aimed at not only answering your own difficult questions, but with the intention of providing the necessary tools to defend your faith in an ever-growing hostile world. Once again, you can learn more about Ravi Zacharias International Ministries by visiting rzim.org. That's rzim.org. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. Let me repeat for the third time. If Jesus really does love you just the way that you are, then why would he have died specifically to transform you into something you aren't? Answer that for me. And you know, in the end, it, it doesn't take a degree in theology to understand the offensive nature of the true gospel message. It flies in the face of the most popular church models in America known as either the seeker-friendly church or, in kind of the more modern twist, the attractional church model. Sadly, and I say that honestly with a sincerity, it's sad. Sad. That there are many churches today that intentionally minimize the full truth of the gospel message 
specifically in order to make the church service more comfortable for the unbeliever to attend it. (laughs) Unlike Jesus, this morning in the synagogue of Capernaum, these pastors would rather temper truth in order to maintain a larger audience. Now what's interesting is that to accomplish this goal, the goal of softening the message in order to keep Jesus from being offensive, these pastors either refuse to articulate what a person's true need is by never discussing sin, brokenness, and the essential need of transformation, or they present Jesus as the fix for lesser needs. You know, that Jesus wants to lead you into financial freedom and make you wealthy and give you influence or a life of purpose, on and on and on. Since the gospel message by its very nature offends, it's only logical that these churches intentionally teach what? Topical messages crafted to ensure they can avoid uncomfortable and offensive truths. As I mentioned earlier, this approach has become so extreme that according to Andy Stanley, in order to reach the lost, we need to uncouple Christianity from the Old Testament. Why? Because it's offensive. I want you to consider, what does this approach actually really yield? The fact is these church models, and I have a friend involved in one, they always justify the approach by boasting huge conversion rates. They argue that the ends justify the means. I mean, you can't argue with with what's resulting. I mean, people are getting saved. That's all that matters, really. Taking Jesus' example here in John 6 to heart, there seems to be one question that no one's bold enough to ask about that argument. Well, I'm going to roll with it. If you aren't presenting a gospel message that offends, are you really presenting the gospel message at all? And if that's the case... If you aren't presenting the gospel message, what are people actually converting to? Like, could you argue that the entire model itself is not churning out Christians, but false converts? People who've come to Jesus as their friend, as their moral example, as their teacher or spiritual guru, without ever coming and accepting him as their savior because their real need is never discussed in church because we don't want to offend them. Like, I know that's a provocative and a difficult thought. I think you can prove it. Have you ever noticed that churches that boast huge numbers of conversions, you know, from their model, still never teach the Bible? And here's why they will never teach the Bible. These church leaders know that if they did ever present the truth of the gospel, many of their, quote, converts would be offended and likely leave their church. So again, I ask, like, what had they converted to? Let me apply this concept as, as, as simply as I possibly can. If you're never offended by a message you hear at church, it's likely you aren't being given the truth of the gospel that should be offensive. Once more, if your church fears the true gospel message, why are you attending? Like In closing, aside from the fact that failing to articulate the real need of fallen man or oversizing his lesser needs never affords the opportunity to present Jesus as the ultimate fix for a person's real need, you know, sin, there is a much deeper problem with the attractional church model, seeker-friendlyism. You know, but by design, 
the offensive nature of the gospel message isn't supposed to be friendly to the seeker, nor has God intended it to be attractive to the unbeliever. Let, let me repeat that. By design, the offensive nature of the gospel message isn't friendly for the seeker, nor has God intended it to be attractive to the unbeliever. Within this bread of life discourse, Jesus has been more than clear that it's solely the job of the Father to draw a sinner. I'll give you three quick verses. Verse 37 of John 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me, gives me, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. You see, the very idea that it's even important for a church ministry to make Jesus more palatable for the masses, seeker-friendly, or attractive denies the sovereignty of God in the process of drawing and minimizes the power of his calling upon the lost to come. The truth. God doesn't need our help drawing sinners any more than he needs our help saving them. I'll repeat, God doesn't need our help drawing sinners any more than he needs our help saving them. God doesn't need a church to temper the nature of the gospel, to be more marketable and lessen its offense. The Father draws and Jesus saves. Period. End of story. By design, when an unbeliever comes to a church that's committed to presenting the real gospel message through the faithful teaching of God's word, because when you do that, you can't avoid what's offensive, one of two things will always happen. This is why teaching the Bible is important, even for the seeker. Either that person, hearing the gospel message, the truth, repents, comes to Jesus, and accepts him as their savior for their real need, sin, Evidence, by the way, that the Father drew them in the first place? Or that person bails. They bail on Jesus because the message of the gospel was offensive and they were never willing to be honest with what they truly needed. Salvation. Which, on a side note, is evidence that the Father probably wasn't drawing them anyway. Different topic for a different day. Again, though, this dynamic whereby people ended up offended by the truth of the gospel message and ultimately people walked away from him. A church service where people left. Oh man, attractional church, but they freak out. We got to remarket test our whole message. This is not what we wanted. In response to people getting up and leaving, what does Jesus do? In verse 35, he just kind of shrugs his shoulders. He says, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my father. Okie dokie. We must ask ourselves, what is really more important? Being a crowded church filled with people who never hear the offending truth? Or being a church of whatever size God determines it to be, filled with people being transformed by the offending truth? You know, the very first church there in Jerusalem 
We're told in Acts 2 verse 47, a church bold to preach the gospel, even when it was offensive. We read that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. That morning in that synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus teaches us that he would rather risk a following or a big crowd than placating the truth of the gospel. Man, I, I, I hope that we're all bold enough to do the same. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. I know that was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. Uh, unpacking the depths of this sermon. I, I just want to encourage you to do one of two things. Do two things. First, contact your local radio station, whatever dial you're listening to, and tell them that you're thankful that they're playing, that they're airing this type of content in your community. Second thing I want to encourage you to do is to visit our website. Our website is outlawradio.org. From the site, it's easy to access our podcast, which is available on both iTunes and Google Play. You can listen to this episode in its entirety, and you can go back and listen to everything we've ever done, all of the the, the previous episodes. Additionally, I, I want to encourage you to connect with us. It's a big part of our show. We want to connect with you, the audience. You can find us on Twitter at radio underscore outlaw. That's our handle. You can email us at info at outlawradio.org, or you can follow us via facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. Once again, I'm Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for the Outlaw Radio Show. You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.